friends. I'm Stacy, And I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired a curiosity of information well after the story is finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. so happy you joined us today for the Curious Reader Podcast. So listeners, last month we recorded over Zoom, but I'm so happy to be back in the library with Melissa, socially distanced, of course. Can you believe it? We are about to discuss our fourth book. And I don't know if you can see my book here, but I have sticky notes coming out in all directions. There are so many curiosities, and I'm starting to think like you, Melissa, asking questions and looking way beyond the book. I can believe we're in the fourth episode because I'm much more relaxed, but I'm a little scared that you're starting to think like me. I don't know what that means or if it's good or bad. <laughs> I'm having so much fun doing this podcast with you, Stacy, and I hope that the readers are enjoying it too. Please like our episodes if you're enjoying them and feel free to drop us a line if you have a book to recommend. Yes, we would love book recommendations. Listeners, you can leave a comment on one of our podcast episodes, or you can see the Curious Reader's contact information for sending us an email. So let's get right to this. Um, today's discussion revolves around the young adult book, Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. And if I'm not mistaken, this book was recommended uh, by someone in our community, maybe from the high school, but I can't remember exactly who. Yes, it was recommended by someone at Goffstown High School, um, someone who appreciated the unique voice of the author. Well, I am thankful for the nudge because I'm not sure I would have ventured over to this book on my own. I stated last month how fantasy was a reach for me, while paranormal barely ever makes it on my to-be-read pile. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, though. The paranormal was fun, lighthearted, and made the perfect backdrop uh, to exploring Latin American culture. So, Melissa, will we see any of this in our three topics today? Yes. So in our last book, A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, uh, we learned a bit about West African culture. And as Stacy alluded, this month's story is embedded in the culture of the Latin American community in the United States. Similar to our last read, this book includes much information about the food, music, and the festivities of the culture. But I'm taking a different direction, even though the food and the music would have been fun for this one, too. <laughs> I want to focus on Day of the Dead, LGBTQIA history, and the term Latinx. All of these themes and more are included in a Padlet that we've linked to from our website. I want to especially thank Senoras DeMarco and McKinnon from the Goffstown High School Language Department for allowing me to interview them. Clips from our conversation are included in this podcast. I'm so thankful for the interviews. They add so much value. Um, and I think we've been able to include them so far for each of the podcasts that we've done. So that's awesome. Now let's get on to the book. For those that have not read Cemetery Boys or have not listened to the little introduction we provided on this podcast about a week ago, let me give you a quick synopsis of the story. This is the story of Yadriel, 
a transgender gay teen that lives in East Los Angeles among a community of healers and spirit guides, collectively called Bruhex. And we're going to talk about that X at the end and how to say this a little bit later in the podcast. Um, Yadriel's family has been part of this community for generations, and his father is actually currently the leader. The Bruhex guard the cemetery, and the Bruhas are the women comforters and healers, while the Brujos are the men that release tethered spirits to the afterworld. And at age 15, up-and-coming Bruex go through a rite of passage. They're granted their magical gifts by Lady Death. Yadriel, now age 16, has been excluded from this initiation indefinitely because he is transgendered. And the story opens with Yadriel and his cousin Maritza taking matters into their own hands. They're secretly performing the sacred rite of passage. And while this is happening, the two teens also sense a deep pain because that is also um, something that is also characteristic of um, Bruex. They're able to to sense when something is going on, especially um, with one of their own. And so they do come to realize that one of their own has died. It's their cousin, Miguel. Yadriel takes this opportunity to set a plan in motion so that his family and community will accept and receive him as a true brujo. All he has to do is solve the mystery of who killed his cousin, summon Miguel's spirit, and release it to the afterworld, all before the upcoming Day of the Dead celebration. So seriously, what could go wrong? (laughs) Nothing, right? Well, Miguel was not the only person that died that night. Um, And soon, Yadriel realizes he summoned the wrong spirit as Julian Diaz stands before him. Now, Julian attends the same school as Yadriel, and I use attends loosely because oftentimes Julian didn't show up to class. Actually, he's a little bit of a, has a bad boy reputation, and quite frankly, Julian's spirit is not quite ready to leave. So let the countdown begin, because Julian has some unfinished business to attend to, Yadriel has a mystery to solve and a mix-up to fix while still trying to prove himself a brujo, and the Day of the Dead festivities are about to begin. So here is my first thought about um, the book. And I'm going to start with the characters. So Yadriel, let's take, um, he takes the reader introspectively into the world of being a transgender teen. This character is um, an empowering but delicate force longing for the people around him, especially those he loves, to accept his true gender, to accept him just as he is. So I would highly recommend this book to a reader that has never explored reading a book with an LGBTQ um, focus. It is so well done. Yadriel lives in a multi-generational home. Aunts and uncles and cousins also live nearby. It's part of the community. And of course, you have the close-knit Bruhex community as well. And yet, Yadriel often feels alone, distanced, excluded. Family members misgender him by using the incorrect pronoun. They continue to call Yadriel by his dead name, and that's a term to signify the name um, that Yadriel was given at birth. Thomas's writing brought Yadriel to life in such a way that I wanted to take away that burden and exhaustion uh, that he felt in correcting people all the time. I actually bristled at one part where the grandmother would use um, an incorrect pronoun or the Spanish feminine for um, child instead of the masculine or when she actually even used uh, the dead name. I just wanted to say, come on, accept him. Can't you see how great he is? And yet, I think the author did a fabulous job at showing that the family didn't outright reject Yadriel, that the family dynamics were complex. There was affection and love, 
But there was miseducation, a sense of being uninformed, and a perception that the family struggled to see past traditional teachings. A veil needed to be removed to show that traditions can grow and change. Growth is a natural progression. And this was literally stated so well in the book. And I'm hoping to jump in here because this whole uh, idea of accepting teens is a concept that I think any teen can um, identify with. And as librarians, I think we deal with a lot. Kids trying to find themselves, trying to see themselves in other characters. Mm -hmm. And then the whole generation gap thing. I remember when I was young, my grandmother used a term for deaf people that's no longer accepted. And I was very, very upset. And she just really didn't understand, just like Gadriel's grandmother wouldn't understand, just a generational gap thing. Yeah. And I think that that's probably the, um, like, a a miseducation or being misinformed that – you know, we've moved into a different society and different terms are no longer um, acceptable to be used anymore. And so I even know that for my own father, I sometimes have to, you know, I give him the eye, like, you can't say that, like, right. and here's why. And and sometimes I think you need to have that education in there. It's not like, don't just don't say that, but here's why. Right. Um, and so that was a great interjection right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I also think that including um, the Bruex community as part of the storyline and character base was a brilliant way to expose blind adherence to expected gender roles and tradition. And Yadriel's so determined to knock down those boundaries. Um, he's a character that brings a voice of hope and light to teens that see themselves in him. Then there is Julian. Okay, Julian was my favorite. I just love Julian. He's boisterous, a bit of a hothead. But under all that, he is funny, loyal, the kind of friend you want in your corner. You can't help but like someone with his characteristics. It was heartwarming to see what was blossoming through all the chaos between um, what was blossoming between Yadril and uh, Julian. And at one point in the story, Yadril states that even with his cousin Maritza, who is a strong supporter of him, and, and I loved their dynamic, she accepts him. But there was still a lot of legwork and explaining of things uh, that Yadril had to do in that relationship, and there was degrees of separation between their experiences. But with Julian, it was easy. Julian understood him, and I think that was because Julian had experiences that introduced him to many people in varied degrees of situations, good and bad. Julian saw people and accepted them where they were. He radiated compassion and saw no place for judgment. And yet, some of the things I read, some people that read this book didn't like Julian at all. He was my favorite character, too. He was very complex, um, and that deep goodness inside him, I thought was was visible. Yeah, um, I don't think he was much different from lots of teen boys who are struggling with identity and maybe getting into a little bit of mischief. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And through all of this, there was a small mystery and plot twist, which I always love. I think most readers are savvy enough to put the clues together just as I did then they're reading it. But Thomas already had my heart wrapped around our protagonist and his ghostly sidekick. So it still felt like a fulfilling adventure in the end. It was a very heartfelt book, and Aidan Thomas provided just the best balance of humor with seriousness. This book was a warm blanket of snuggled goodness. I love that snuggled goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Great to read in in the winter months. That's what I would say. So one final thought before we move into our three key focus themes. 
Let me say that if we were to have a follow-up podcast or, you know, maybe venture into um, some type of YouTube that would also um, be an extension of our podcast, maybe in the works, Stay we'll tuned. see. Stay tuned. Exactly. Thank you. Um, this book plants seeds for exploring issues like homelessness among teens, group homes and parental abandonment inner city happenings, specifically the idea that certain missing teens are expendable, immigration, deportation, DACA even, and success in apprenticeship programs as an alternative path after high school. Just wow, there was a lot in this book. And I can see now how you're thinking like see? me. I'm so excited. So <laughs> one of the things I tell students all the time is that when we are given a research project or we, we're reading something, everybody will have a different interests. So yeah. some of your themes I didn't even think about at all as I was reading, just because we're different people. We have yep. different interests. Or um, when we collaborate together, sometimes we pick up things that other people don't pick up. So yeah. I'm so glad you're thinking like me, even though I'm still a little scared. <laughs> no, don't be scared. Nothing to be scared of. But we have um, some great interviews. So I think that it is time that I am just going to let you take it away, Melissa, and move into our themes. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to start with the first theme, Day of the Dead. And I had a lot of fun with this one because we had some uh, teachers help us out with understanding it better, and I really did learn a lot from them. So Cemetery Boys focuses on a short t period of time that includes preparations for Day of the Dead and also the celebrations themselves. And before I get into the book a little bit, I want to talk about something I discovered while I was researching because I came across the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, which celebrates the Day of the Dead each year. And I have a museum background. So uh, it was very exciting for me to see one of my favorite museums with a little bit more information for us and, a, and what looks like a fabulous exhibit that they put on. If you haven't been to this museum, you should go. It's one of the best museums around and it's about an hour from here in uh, Gothstown, New Hampshire, um, just outside of Boston, maybe 45 minutes to an hour there. Um, the museum is filled with artifacts that tell a story about New England history and culture and more. And on their website, they describe the significance of Day of the Dead. Uh, the website says, originating with the Aztecs, the Mexican Day of the Dead is a unique blend of Mesoamerican and Christian rituals. The holiday, which is celebrated on November 1st, All Saints Day, is usually dedicated to children. And November 2nd, All Souls Day, is dedicated to adults. I loved how this book represented the Day of the Dead, the rich details of the preparation, the food, the adornment of altars, symbolism of marigolds, and of course, the decorating of sugar skulls. And I'm putting myself out there and being honest, I really didn't know very much about this celebration and its significance because I think in Western culture, it gets wrongly wrapped into Halloween festivities, which it is not. Uh, I believe this sentiment was not lost on our author, um, Aidan Thomas. Here is an excerpt from the book, and let me set up the situation. Julian is helping Yadriel find a Halloween costume that is for something else, having nothing to do with um, the Day of the Dead ceremony. So, it was the day of Halloween, which meant the party supply store was nearly cleared out. As we skip ahead, Julian is pointing out costumes, and then he flicked the corner of a sugar skull, face painting kit. This, Julian says, to which Yadriel states, no, I am not supporting the mass appropriation of cal Calaveras. Calaveras. Ah, 
in Western culture. Neither of us took Spanish, so. <laughs> no, I did not. And as much as I've gone over and practiced these words, for some reason, they do not stick in my and mind. And they have that beautiful rolling of the R they that do. we They do. And I just, <laughs> I just have this New Hampshire accent that just doesn't allow me to say anything. But so in this, Yadriel is stating that he's not supporting this mass appropriation of these sugar skull kits to be used as Halloween costumes. And I think this was specifically added for a reason. They felt it was a significant to signal out, and rightly so, because it's respectful and important to represent this celebration correctly. And I thought this book did a great job of educating the audience. And I'm really glad that you pointed out that passage, Stacey, because I did a little research on cultural appropriation, and that was one way I was thinking mm-hmm. of going, because that's that's a really hot yep. topic these days. <laughs> Um, but I've just provided some of my research in the Padlet, um, but it certainly easily could have been one of the, the topics. Definitely, so. definitely. I mean, at some point, we do have to put a cutoff of what we can include, exactly. I guess, in our podcast. <laughs> so I spoke with the GHS, the Goffstown High School Spanish teachers, Erin McKinnon and Lisa DeMarco about the holiday. I'm primarily including our interview in this segment because they were so well-spoken and, and really did teach me a lot. I first asked them about the belief in the day of the day. Um, or rather the dead returning to visit families on the Day of the Dead. The book seemed to tell us that only bruje, which is the way uh, the senoras said the word, mm-hmm. um, the way they could call back their dead. And that's not what I remembered hearing about the celebration from things I had heard Hmm. in the past. So I encourage my students to take knowledge they already have in their heads and not to discount it when they learn something new. I actually have a sticker in my office that says willing to change my mind based on new information. So we shouldn't discount what's in our head, but we should continually add to our knowledge and maybe change it a little bit as we as we go. I love um, I love that sticker. I think I would love one of those. I'm going to get you one. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to play a long clip of the GHS teachers explaining the veracity of the tradition as it is told in the book, what's real, what's a little bent. Um, they then go on to talk about ofrenda, which are the altars that are made to honor the dead. So here's a little clip for you or a long clip for you. Well, so Day, day of the Dead, it's primarily... Um, a Mexican tradition. Um, so it's not the grand festivities um, everywhere in the Latino world. Um, so the going to the grave sites and, um, you know, making an ofrenda or an offering, building offerings in your home, um, similar to what we do here in Goffstown, that is the, the Mexican piece. Um, so they do believe in the dead coming back. I think it's similar to Um, I think other beliefs where even though maybe not everyone believes that, yes, in fact, the ancestors come back, um, they still do the practices. And I think as times evolved, I think, unfortunately, a lot of those traditions have been lost and maybe less and less people are believing that, in fact, the ancestors come back. Um, But I think that there definitely are people in Mexico that do believe that during that period, there's the, what, the opening that allows the dead to return. And um, some of the things I've read is that they, they believe that, you know, the fruit that they put on the ofrenda becomes soft because the souls take the flavors from the fruit and um, that kind of thing. Erin, um, do you have anything? I would say there's no, I don't think that there's a, any, um, I don't think you have to have magical powers to be able to come back. That's, that's, I think maybe an invention of the author there uh, rather than part of the the belief system of, of, or the perspective of the Mexican culture. 
What are some of the common things that they would put on an ofrenda? You mentioned fruit. What else might go on there? Um, so there's the, the four basic elements um, of an ofrenda that are water, air, earth, and fire. Um, so the different things that they place on will often, you know, fall within those elements. So for example, like they put a, a glass of water for the soul to quench its thirst. They put um, an area for the soul to clean after its journey with, um, you know, water, soap, towel, a mirror, a comb, that kind of thing. Um, for fire, they have candles. Um, I've read different things about, you know, how many candles and what the candles represent, um, the cardinal directions, the, you know, but you know, they, they bring up their prayers to heaven. Um, they have incense, which, um, usually is made out of copal, which is, um, like a, a resin from a specific type of tree, um, that is burned. That's very aromatic, um, that's supposed to call the souls to the ofrenda. Um, and that can represent air as well as the papel picado. The papel picado is the punched paper with the, the design. So that kind of flows in the wind. Um, and then earth is the flowers, which um, they use sempasuchil, which are the marigold flowers. They're actually not marigold. They're specific um, in the marigold family that are traditional to Mexico at this time of year. Um, and there's different, you know, legends and stories that go along with the sempasuchil. Um, but flowers in general um, are important as well as fruit um, and food and traditional foods that they um, will place on the ofrenda. I'm glad you brought up marigolds because that was a big part of this book. Oh, really? And and you mentioned that they're not really marigolds. or well, it's like a, I'll have to it, look into that. Sempasuchil. Called, is, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the Sempasuchil is a flower that's been around since the Aztecs. It's actually a, that it's a Aztec word or Mayan word. No, it's Az, I think it means, Oh God, 20, 20 petals. I 20 think petals. Yeah, yeah. is the meaning. So it's a, it's they have ancient flowers, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love how these things serve as, as symbols. I once asked somebody what the candles in the windows at Christmas mean, and they had no idea. They just said it's something we do. So I think, with any culture that sometimes happens over time. Right? Yes. Um, so yeah, one of, one of the activities that I do with my fours or had have done is like, there's, there's an infographic. That's how many people actually believe that the dead come back. Um, and it's interesting, you know, to see kind of, you know, when they interviewed people in, you know, 2010 or whenever the survey was, is that, you know, not as many people actually believe as, you know, but then again, you know, we do all sorts of traditions here in our country as well that, you know, we do because it's what we do. So it's interesting. And some really believe and some mm-hmm. do it because it's more of a tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. Has this spread to other countries besides Mexico or is it really just Mexico that practices? I think um, uh, many, many countries celebrate their dead in some way, in some different fashion. And there are um, other countries like... Um, that celebrate um, El Dia de los Difuntos, they call it. Um, it, it. It corresponds with All Saints and All Souls Day. So uh, in that the Catholic religion has spread all over the world and there have been um, traditional like indigenous communities in various places. A lot of um, different communities celebrate their dead, but not in the same way, not with an ofrenda and not in the same um I don't know, not as big of a celebration as in Mexico. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, so so I, I think it's common to see in, in probably Latin countries where families for El Dia de los Difuntos would, you know, return to the grave and, you know, bring flowers and clean and, and you know, talk about their dead and whatnot. But the, yeah, the, the, the fiesta type celebration that, that we think of when we think of Day of the Dead is very particular to Mexico. And obviously where Mexicans have, you know, have emigrated um, they brought their culture with them. So there's definitely a lot of Dia de los Muertos celebrations in areas that are, you know, highly Mexican, you know, for example, in, in the United States and um, in Texas and in New Mexico and California, um, there are community celebrations of Dia de los Muertos where they build community offerings. And um, you definitely see those traditions coming um, from, you know, the immigrants that have come into that area. And I think parts of Guatemala as well for the same reason, just because, you know, people move and, and they bring their traditions and their beliefs with them. How important is this holiday? Is it considered a very important holiday? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very, very important. Yeah. Strong it, connection to their their family. Mm-hmm. I think I think the generally speaking, Mexican culture has a strong family values. And so I think that this is celebration of, of our of their ancestors is connects back to that general strong idea of strong family values. Or the importance of family, I guess, maybe. Yeah, this book is all about the importance of family. So I I, I like that. That's a good connection. Um, yeah. Families will save, you know, it, it's kind of like here, pe- some families will budget for Christmas. For Mexicans, many of them will, will budget and save for Dia de los Muertos. It's very important um, to, you know, to give to the ancestors during this time. Um, so they'll, they'll save, they'll, you know, put forth a lot more money than I think what an American would feel to do. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. So now we're just going to move right along to our next theme, which is LGBTQIA. And over my lifetime, that the acronyms have gotten longer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so the main characters in this book identify themselves as LGBTQIA. The author uses the specific term transgender and the term Latinx or Latine, as Senora McKinnon explained to me to describe Yadriel, the main character. I want to focus on LGBTQIA plus as my second theme and later on Latin X as our third theme today or Latin A. We link to a great article in our Padlet, which you can get to from our show notes. It's called the ABCs of LGBTQIA plus for those who need help with the language of sexual orientation and gender identity. So, Melissa, you um, you alluded in the beginning too about LGBTQIA and how that um, acronym ha- has had more and more added to it. it. What is the plus at the end? So, the as people discover more about sexual identity mm-hmm. or, or better define it, um, they keep adding more parts of it. I know that the A mm-hmm. is can be different things to different people. Some okay. say asexual. I forget what the other one is. Mm-hmm. Um, they also want to include the allies of the LGBTQIA okay. community. So that plus represents things that um, are not in the, the initial letters and mm-hmm. also to include the allies in the well, community. Oh, well, thank you for that. So this book is groundbreaking in its portrayal of transgender individuals, which we mentioned before. The publishing industry has had a boon in characters with diverse backgrounds, traits, beliefs, and identities, but Aidan Thomas's book is unique for its portrayal of a trans boy as the main character in the book. 
There are so many directions, again, that I could go when exploring <laughs> Adriel as a transgender character. But what most interests me is why this character is groundbreaking. In order to understand that, we must know a little of the history of gay rights and about the portrayal of diverse characters in literature. I'm going to provide a super quick intro to the subject. There's so much involved. And actually, the state of California now includes the study of the LGBTQ community as a requirement in their educational system. So oh, is California the only as the far only as state I know, right now? Right? Oh, okay. That's the one that kept coming up over and over, oh. but I'm not sure it's the only one. So our show notes go more in depth um, because you could teach full classes on this yes. subject. <laughs> um, so in the 1970s, the sexuality of gay characters began to be openly and proudly portrayed in literature meant for everyone. Prior to that time, when LGBTQ characters were written into widely distributed novels, they were often portrayed as people who were self-conscious about their sexual identity or were written about in a way that hinted at their orientation without outwardly addressing it. In his first novel in 1956, the great author James Baldwin, who I encourage you to read his stuff. For, I read uh, one of his books for the first time this summer. It was fabulous. Um, James Baldwin wrote Giovanni's Room about bisexual and gay characters. The 1960s and 1970s civil rights movement increasingly made it possible for writers to explore the lives of gay characters. And finally, now in the 21st century, we are seeing a proliferation of our own voices book. Um, these were actually written, these are actually written by LGBTQ authors. And we provide a list of this kind of literature in the show notes so you can get started digging in there. Thomas's character is groundbreaking for the voice it provides us with heartfelt emotions, strong feelings, and defiance by a character who wants re recognition of who he really is by the people he loves. Thomas brings his own voice to make the voice of Yadriel come alive. Yeah, we, we've used that term own voices, I think, in all the books that we've discussed so far. But I want to make sure our listeners really understand what this group of words stands for. So it started as a hashtag, hashtag own voices, and it was created by the author um, Corinne Doivis. This refers to literature by an author illustrator from a marginalized or underrepresented group. Um, and that reflects their own experiences, perspectives in their work. This is in contrast to, say, an author who's outside, um, and then outside of that group and their perspective of writing of a character, um, is, is not, let me back up. Well, it's not born of their it's own. It's not born of, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> So in other words, the author illustrator also comes from that underrepresented group, and it allows these groups to tell their story. It's not just about having um, diverse characters and diverse literature, but giving these authors agency and authority to publish their stories. It's a stand for these authors who themselves have been underrepresented even at the publishing table. So this it's interesting because there are people who are against the own voices movement or have difficulty with it because they feel like that movement's telling people who have different experiences that they can't write about experiences outside of their own. So that's another interesting yeah, thing that, to explore yeah. too. So um Librarians often talk about diverse literature in libraries and the need for all library patrons to be able to see themselves represented in books. Thus, the strong portrayal of Yadriel, who openly proclaims his orientation and stands up for his rights, is important for young adults who struggle with similar issues. 
In fact, the Library Bill of Rights affirms that all libraries are forums for information and ideas and provides access um, to information for all people. You know, luckily in recent years, um, mainstream publishers have released YA novels in which trans authors tell their own stories. And um, 2020 had some wonderful books published by trans or non-binary authors, uh, such as Felix Ever After by Kaysen, uh Callender, Stay Gold by Tobley McSmith, and Pet by Akwake Emezi. The National Park Service has some fascinating information on their website that they call Telling All American Stories. And these web pages explain the importance of recognizing individual experiences and highlights the history of groups whose cultures have been ignored or maligned by much of the general population through history. So I want to provide a little information about the history of LGBT but beyond the characters in literature. There is prolific evidence that human sexuality has always been varied. But the movement to address gay rights didn't begin in the United States until in the early 20th century. People who were gay did not necessarily identify as such, as it was not a culturally recognized mm. or understood identifier. But here's a brief timeline. Actually, I loved reading this timeline uh, that that you put in, and you said it is brief, but um, I just thought it was so interesting to look back and remember some of the things um, and and how short really these years are like 19 year we're going to talk about it, 1966 really in the grand scheme of things was not that long ago yeah and just in my lifetime it's, yeah. it's changed drastically not that i'm that young but <laughs> <laughs> okay so i want to start with this to honor yadriel 1952 was the first time an american prominently came out as transgender Christine Jorgensen talked to the media about her experiences with hormone replacement and surgery. Then in 1950, which was a little bit earlier, actually, hmm. the first lasting organization supporting gay men was formed. It was called the Mattachine Society. LGBTQ was not an identifier back mm -hmm. then. That's recent within my lifetime. Okay. And in 1955, the first organization supporting lesbians was formed. It was called the Daughters of Blitis, Blitis. I don't know how to say that. 1966 was the Compton Cafeteria Riot when two women were denied service for breaking gendered clothing laws. Wow. So that's within, that's that's not much before I was born. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. 1969, this date's considered the birth of the modern LGBTQ movement when police raided the Stonewall Inn and began multi-day skirmishes with the LGBT community in New York City. Hmm. That is a huge date to the LGBTQ okay. community, and I encourage you to go read about those riots. In 1970, the first gay parade was held in New York City, and it was later called the Gay Pride Parade. In 1973, the American Psychological Society removed homosexuality from its list of psychological disorders. Oh, I didn't even realize that it was considered a psychological yeah. disorder at one time. It was, hmm. and and... Yes, just like laws on yeah. the books. Um, yeah, things change fast. In 1977, the United States had, for the first time, an openly gay person serving in public office. His name was Harvey, Harvey Milk. Milk. Yeah. In 1982, the U.S. saw the emergence of what was then called gay-related immunodeficiency disorder, later called AIDS. In 1989, Denmark became the first country in the world to recognize same-sex unions. In 1997, Ellen DeGeneres came out. 
1998, Matthew Shepard was brutally beaten. Mm. In 2003, homosexual behavior was decriminalized by the Supreme Court in the U.S. In 2004, Massachusetts recognized same-sex marriage. That seems like yesterday. Yeah. In 2009, the U.S. passed the Hate Crimes Prevention Law. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court recognized same-sex marriage. In 2014, the courts ruled that Title IX, um, which is generally looked at as a, a, a law for sports, women in sports, mm-hmm. okay. um, but it in, involves a lot more than that with schools, um, protects, it protected transgender students as well, according to the courts. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states are required to provide marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So you can see how things snowballed, especially when we hit the 21st century. Um, But still a long way to go, right? I mean, we've seen all these great strides here, but still a long way to go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a a weird shift, but that brings us right to theme three. So which is Latinx or Latine. So the characters in this book are described as Latin A, and the main characters are Brew X or Brew Brew Hay. Yeah, that was – sometimes we have conversations before we actually start recording, and so uh, we had a conversation about that earlier because I was trying to figure out if it was Brew Hex or Brew Hay, and I saw conflicting information. Uh, I actually watched a YouTube video uh, with the auth- that had the author, Aiden Thomas, um, talking about cemetery boys and in that uh they used brew uh brewex. So if you're a traditional Spanish speaker, it is hard to say those brewex. Yeah. Okay. That's not part of your normal speech. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's it depends if you're primarily a Spanish speaker or if you're from this country and primarily okay. an okay. English speaker. Um but I I want to explore the use of that of that X, whether it's a hey or an X. Um, that X at the end of the word is an out- outgrowth of both gay rights um, and also the feminist movements, depending what you, you huh. read. And it, it could have just, you know, it's funny. We It's hard to find the origin of words sometimes. Right. But um, I want to give a nod to the supernatural in this book before we go much more into it, um, though I decided not to research it in depth to focus on other issues. So, Supernatural is a central theme. Brujo and Bruja are those who practice witchcraft, um, as you mentioned before in your summary of the book. I recently read about this culture in the book Labyrinth Lost by Zareta Cordova, and I wanted to to bring that up. In that story, a young Latina decides she wants to reject her birthright as a Bruja. I actually really enjoyed that book, and I highly recommend it. It was interesting for me to contrast the young person in that book, the the woman who or the girl who rejects her power, mm. with Yadriel, who so deeply wanted um, wanted his power but was denied his true birthright. So in Cemetery Boys, Bruja and Bruho becomes Bruhe um, as a gender neutral preference for its transgender main character. This term is really just used in the United States. So I apologize. My phone's going off. It's a little, uh, I want to dance a little bit like a so slow. <laughs> I listen to another podcast where the guy's phone goes off all the time and yeah. they're always yelling. <laughs> I won't yell at you, uh, Melissa. <laughs> no. Um, we were talking about the, um, the gender neutral preference for using that brouhaha is that gender neutral preference, um, for transgender main characters. Yeah. Um, and it's really just used in the United States. That's interesting. 
So according to a Pew Research study, the term is controversial and currently is not used by the majority of Latinas or Latinos in the United States. It reflects an attempt to switch toward this gender neutral, and therefore younger generations are more likely to use it than older. And that brings up the idea of traditions and teaching and learning. Um, As it relates to this book, this terminology is obviously beneficial for people who don't want to be identified in traditional ways. But some argue that the Latin A term or the Latinx term also reflects a U.S.-centric view based, based on colonialism, Latin America as distinguished from America. And it does not reflect the way the, that Spanish is spoken. As I mentioned before, it's difficult to pronounce mm-hmm. if you're a true Spanish speaker. Some also object to how it lumps together diverse cultures from many different countries. The term Latinx may have been created by the gay Latino community for English conversation in the United States or by the feminists, as I said, who did not want to default to masculine terms. However, it started, it attempted to solve some problems with language and perception while creating others. <laughs> I think um, when I was looking this up, because I, I was kind of researching the same thing, and I came to that same Pew research study and, and saw that same information there. When I was a kid, Latina and Latino were not terms we used either. No. They didn't exist. Yeah. We called people from Latin American countries Hispanic. According to my research, Hispanic was first used in the 1970s, and this distinction was added to the U.S. Census in 1980. Before that, Hispanics actually called themselves Caucasian or distinguished themselves along other lines. Hmm. It's interesting how race and ethnicity are social constructs that matter in different ways at different times throughout history. Yeah, definitely. When it was more commonly used, the term Hispanic was criticized by many. And actually, I shouldn't say more commonly used because that's the term that my uh, Spanish teachers were using primarily. Oh, okay. So, um, it, but it was criticized because it was not all, it didn't include people hailing from Latin America or it assumed that they were all Spanish speakers. But when we think about mm-hmm. Brazil, that's not what they speak there. So, yeah. um, calling Brazilians Hispanic is is inappropriate. You know, in this book, the one thing um, that I noticed is they did talk about bringing all those cultures together on the Day of the Dead. and But they specifically did point out um, the different places. So uh, Colombian and Cuban. And um, I really loved that there was this collective diverseness to bring it in, but then also sharing and um, giving a voice to the individual Right. cultures themselves too. Yes, I just, I exactly. loved how that was all put together. Yeah. We tend to lump people together yeah. and we, we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to bring our Spanish teachers in again for a short clip explaining these terms that we've been discussing here. We actually, that's also part of our, uh, <laughs> our, our lesson, our, one of our units in Spanish fours. We talk about that because people use the terms interchangeably and I'm not sure that most general, uh, the general population knows the difference between the terms. Mm-hmm. And, um, Hispanic is used to talk about anyone who is from a Spanish speaking country. So that would include Spain and obviously all of the Spanish speaking countries in um, Central and South America. And then Latino refers to a person who's from or, or it, they have roots from a Latin American country. So that would also include countries that didn't speak Spanish. So someone from Brazil would be considered Latino, even though they speak Portuguese in Brazil. So that's the, this, the sort of difference between the two terms. Yeah, it's so interesting because, yeah, you could be both Latino and Hispanic, right? But you don't have to be Hispanic if you're Latino. 
It's very interesting. So in my research, I, I read that some people took offense, like people from Brazil, because they're not Hispanic, but they get lumped in. Mm-hmm. Um, Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the readings on our Spanish for midterm is about uh, a Spanish um, artist, Rosalia, won the Latin American, uh, the Latino award. Um, and she's a, a Spanish, you know, from Spain. And so they, a lot of Latin Americans were offended because she won as a Latino, but she's not a Latino. But she says, well, I feel Latino because I speak Spanish. And so it, it's about that idea of, you know, in a term, you know, how do you, yeah, how do you identify? It's, it's interesting. All of this got me thinking about the evolution of language. Sometimes when words change, the change is preferable to some people and not so much to others. Isn't this exactly why words change? (laughs) We are continually trying to make them more acceptable to contemporary society, aren't we? Evolution of ideas and language go hand in hand. And I think this book did a great job reflecting that. Yeah, I think that brings um, us back to when we talked about growth as a natural progression and generations change. And with that comes new ideas, new traditions, um, and improved understanding that launches society forward. Um, And so this sounds like a great note uh, to conclude on. So this was a little bit longer um, with those wonderful uh, interviews, but I really um, hope that you enjoyed them. And listeners, thanks for tuning in to us today. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to let us know by clicking the like button on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to follow the Curious Reader podcast. That way you know when our next episode is available. And speaking of our next episode, we explore The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. It's a YA novel full of mystery, puzzles, riddles, and codes. I'm looking forward to switching genres again. (laughs) So thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.